0: What everybody wants. Wouldn't you like to have a magic phrase that would stop arguments, eliminate ill feelings, create good wills, and make the other person listen attentively? Yes, alright, here it is. I don't know, I don't blame you, one iota, for feeling as you do. If I were you, I would undoubtedly feel just as you do. An answer like that will soften the most. Can old cuss alive, and you can say that, and be 100% sincere. Because if you were the other person, you of course would feel just as he does. Take Al Capone for example. Suppose you have inherited the same body and temperament and mind that Al Capone had. Suppose you had had his environment and experience, you would then be precisely what he was and where he was. For it is those things and only those things that made him what he was. The only reason, for example, that you are not a rattlesnake. Is that your father and mother were rattlesnakes? You deserve very little credit for being what you are. And remember, the people who come to you irritated, begotten, unreasoning, deserve very little discredits for being what they are. Feel sorry for the poor devils. Pity them. Sympathize them with them. Say to yourself, there but for the grace of God, go I. Three-fourths of the people you will ever meet are hungering and thirsting for sympathy. Give it to them. They will love you. I once gave a broadcast about the author of Little Woman, Louisa May Alcott. Naturally, I know she had lived and written her immortal books in Concord, Massachusetts. But without thinking what I was saying, I spoke of visiting her old home in Concord, New Hampshire. If I have said New Hampshire only once... It might have been forgiven, but alas and alack, I said it twice. I was deluged with letters and telegrams, stinging messages that swirled around my def- defenseless head with a swarm of hornets. Many were indignant, a few insulting. One colonial dame, who had been reared in Concord, Massachusetts, and who was then living in Philadelphia, vented her scorching wrath upon me. She couldn't have been much more bitter if I was accused Miss Alcott of being a cannibal of New Guinea. Guinea. As I read the letter, I said to myself, Thank God, I'm not married to that woman. I feel like writing and telling her that although I had made a mistake in geography, she had made a far greater mistake in common courtesy. That was to be just my opinion sentence. Then I was going to roll up myself and tell her what I really thought, but I didn't. I controlled myself. I realized that any hot-headed fool would do that, and most fools would do just do just that. I wanted to a fools, so I resolved to try to turn her hostility into friendliness. It would be a challenge, a sort of game I would play. I said to myself, after all, I were if I were she, I would probably feel just as she does. So I determined to sympathize with her viewpoint. The next day I was in Philadelphia, I called her on the telephone. The conversation went something like this. Me, Mrs. So-and-so, you wrote me a letter a few days ago, and I want to thank you for it. She, in incisive, cultured, well bred tones, to whom have I had the honor of speaking? Me, I'm a stranger to you. My name is Dale Carnegie. You listened to a broadcast I gave about Louisa May Alcott a few Sundays ago, and I met the Unforgivable blunder of saying that she had lived in Concord, New Hampshire. 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 It was a stupid blunder, and I want to apologize for it. It was so nice for you to take the time to write me. See, I'm sorry, Mr. Carnegie, that I wrote as I did. I lost my temper. I must apologize. Me, no, no, you're not the one to apologize. I'm any school child would have known better than to have what I said. I apologize over the air the following Sunday, and I want to apologize to you personally now. See, I was born in Concord, Massachusetts. My family is centuries and I am very proud of my native state. I am really quite distressed to hear you say that Miss Alcott had lived in New Hampshire, but I am really ashamed of that letter. Me, I assure you that you were not one ten as distressed as I am. My error didn't hurt Massachusetts, but it did hurt me. It is so seldom that people of your standing and culture take the time to write people who speak on the radio. And I do hope you'll write me again if you detect an error in my talks. See, You know, I really like very much the way you have accepted my criticism. You must be a very nice person. I should like to know you better. So because I had apologized and sympathized with her point of view, she began apologizing and sympathizing with my point of view. I had the satisfaction of controlling my temper the satisfaction of returning kindness or an insult. I go infinitely more real fun out for making her like me than I could ever have gotten out of telling her to go and take a jump in the S-C-H-U-Y-L Kill River. River Every man who occupies the White House is faced almost daily with thorny problems in human relations. President Tuff was no exception, and he learned from experience the enormous chemical value of sympathy in neutralizing the acid of hard feelings. In this book, Ethics in Service, Tuff gives rather an amusing illustration of how he softened the ear of a disappointed and ambitious moment. A lady in Washington wrote, Tuff, whose husband had some political influence, came and labored with me for six weeks or more to appoint her son to a position. She secured the aid of senators and congressmen in formidable number and came with them to see they spoke with emphasis. The place was one required technical qualification and following the recommendation of the head of the bureau. I appointed somebody else. I then received a letter from the mother saying that I was most grateful, ungrateful since I declined to make her a happy woman as I could have done by a turn of my head she complained further that she had labored with her stage delegation and got all the votes for my administration bid in which i was especially interested then this was the way i rewarded her when you get a letter like that the first thing you do is to think how you can be severe with a person who has committed an impropriety of even being a little impertinent then you may compose an answer then if you are wise you will put the letter in drawer and lock the drawer it out in the course of two days. Such communication will always bear the two days' delay in answering, and you, when you take it out after that, that interval, you will not send it. This is just the course I do. After that, I sat down and wrote her just a polite letter as I could, telling her I, really, I realized a mother's disappointment under such circumstances, but that really the appointment was not left to my mere personal preference. That I had select a woman, that I had select a man with technical qualification, and had before to allow the recommendation of the head of the bureau. I expressed the hope that her son would go on and accomplish what she had hoped for him in the position which he then had. That mollified her, and she wrote me a note saying she was sorry she had written as she said, but the appointment I sent in was not confirmed at once. And after an interval, I received a letter which purported to come from her husband. Though it was in same handwriting as all the others, I was had advised that, due to the nervous prostration that had followed her disappointment in this case, she had to take to her bed and had developed a most serious case of cancer of the stomach. Would I not restore her to health by withdrawing the first name and replacing it by her sons? I had to re- write another letter, this one to the husband, to say that I hope that Diagnosis would prove to be an inaccurate that I sympathize with him in the sorrow. He must have in the serious illness of his wife, but that is impossible to withdraw. The name sent it. The man whom I appointed was confirmed, and within two days after I received that letter, we sent, we gave a musical at the White House. The first two people to greet Mrs. Duff and me were this husband and wife though the wife had so recently been into articulo mortis jay magnum represented an elevator escalator maintenance company in tulsa oklahoma which had the maintenance contract for the escalator in one of the tulsa's leading hotel the hotel manager did not want to shut down the escalator for ma for more than two hours at a time because he did not want the he did not want to inconvenience the hotel's guests. The repair that had made to be, the repair that had to be made would take at least eight hours, and his company did not always have a specially qualified, qualified mechanics available at the convenience of the hotel. When Mr. Magna, when Mr. Mangum was able to schedule to top-flight mechanic for this job. He telephoned the hotel manager and instead of arguing with him to give him the necessary time, he said, Rick, I know your hotel is quite busy and you would like to keep the escalator shut down time to maintain. I understand your concern and about this. We want to do everything possible to accommodate you. However, our diagnosis of the situation shows that if we do not do a complete job now, your escalator may suffer more serious damage and that would cause a much longer shutdown. I know you would not have to I know you would not want to inconvenience your guests for several days. The manager had to agree that an eight-hour shutdown was more desirable than several days. By sympathizing with the manager's desire to keep his patrons happy, Mr. Magnum was able to win the hotel manager to his way of thinking easily and without rancor. Joyce Norris a piano teacher in St. Louis, Missouri told of how she had handled a problem piano teacher. Often had have with teenage teenage girls, Babette has exceptionally long fingernails. This is a serious handicap to anyone who wants to develop proper piano playing habits. Mrs. Norris reported, "I know her long fingers would be a barrier for her in her desire to play well." During our discussion prior to her start starting her lessons with me, I did not mention anything to her about her nails. I didn't want to discourage her for taking lessons, and I also knew she would not want to lose that which she took so much pride in and such great care to make attractive. After her first lesson, when I felt the time was right, I said, Babette, you have have attractive hands and beautiful fingernails. If you want to play the piano as well as you are capable of and as well as you would like to, you would be surprised how much quicker and easier it would would be for you. if you would trim your nail sorters just think o- about it, okay? She made a face with a definitely negative. I also talked to her mother about this situation, again mentioning how lovely her nails were. Another negative reaction. It was obvious that Babette's beautifully manicured nails were important to her. The following week, week Babette returned from her second lesson. Much to my surprise, the fingernails were trimmed. I complimented her and praised her for making such a sacrifice. I also thanked her mother for influencing Babete to cut her nails. Her reply was, oh, I had nothing to do with it. Babete decided to do it her own, and this is the first time she had ever trimmed her nails for anyone. Did Mrs. Norris threaten Babete? Did she say she would refuse to teach a student with long fingernails? No. She did not. She let Babete know that her fingernails were a thing of beauty, and it would be a sacrifice to cut them. She implied, I sympathize with you. I know it won't be easy, but it will pay off in your better musical development. Sol Huro was probably America's number one impresario. For almost half a century, he handled artists such world famous artists as Chalia Pen, Isadora Duncan, and Pavlova. Mr. Hurok told me that one of the first lessons he had learned in dealing with his temperamental stars was the necessity for sympathy and sympathy and more sympathy with their Saint crisis. For three years, he was impresario for Fyodor Chalyapin, one of the greatest bassos who ever thrilled the rigid box holder at the Metropolitan, yet Chaliapin was a constant problem. He carried on like a spoiled child. To put in, in Mr. Hurok's own inimitable phrase, he was a hell of a fellow in every way. For example, Chalya Pen would call up Mr. Hurok about the of the day he was going to sing and say, so I feel very terrible, my throat is like a raw hamburger, it is impossible for me to sing tonight. Did Mr. Hurok argue with him? Oh no, he said that an entrepreneur couldn't handle artists that way, so he would rush over to Chalya Pen's hotel dripping with sympathy. What a pity he would mount. What a pity, my poor fellow. Of course you cannot sing. I will cancel the engagement at once. It will only cost a couple of thousand dollars, but that is nothing in comparison to your reputation. Then Chalyapin would sigh and say, Perhaps you had become perhaps you had better come over later in that day. Come at five and see how I feel then. At five o'clock mister Hurop would again rushed to his hotel, dripping with sympathy, again he would insist on cancelling the engagement and again Chaliapin would sing, sigh and say, Well, maybe you had better come to see me later, I may be better then. At 7.30, the great basso would consent to sing, only with understanding that Mr. Hulok would walk out on the stage of the Metropolitan and announce that Chaliapin had a very bad cold and was not in good voice. Mr. Huro could lie and say he would do it, for he knew that there was only way to get the bus out of the stage. Dr. Arthur I Gates said in the splendid book Educational Psychology Sympathy the human species universally crabs. The child eagerly displays his injury or even inflicts a cut or brace in order to chip in order to reap abundant sympathy. For the same purpose, adults so their braces relate their accidents illness especially details of surgical operation self-pity for misfortunes real or imaginary is in some measure practically a universal practically a universal practice so if you want to win people to your way of thinking put in practice so now the principle nine states that be sympathetic with the other person's ideas and desires